This is Matthew Hester, Senior Pastor at Dominion Church. I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Dominion Church podcast experience. Our podcast aims to deliver truth from God's Word concerning His kingdom and your righteous identity as His beloved child. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and do share it with a friend. We pray that you are blessed, challenged, and changed by what you're about to hear. We want to welcome our Facebook live stream. Thanks for joining us here at Dominion Church. Uh, Maybe you're joining us on YouTube at our YouTube channel, Dominion Church SC. Uh, Also, we want to welcome you to our Dominion Church podcast experience. So lots of ways that you can plug in. We're so glad that you're a part of this tonight. Do us a favor, like and share that. uh, And then on the podcast, leave us a five-star review so we can get in front of more people. That will certainly be a help to us. We are so excited. We've got a special guest in the house tonight. Randall Worley is with us, Uh, and that's Palm Sunday. So we're so excited to have him here. I just want to take just a moment uh, to share about this connection and then invite him to come up. Uh, It's actually quite interesting. I've probably been receiving from you, Randall, probably for about the last five years. Just I don't know how I connected and started watching videos and listening to messages and um, and then a, a mutual friend of ours and a friend of this house, Jason Clark, uh, he has a great podcast called Rethinking God and Tacos is what it's called. You should go check it out. And he had Randall on as a guest last year. And 2020, for me, I was reaching for lifelines. Just I need something to help me because 2020 just stretched a lot of us thin. And, uh, and so I saw that Randall was a guest and I started listening to the podcast and I know I've listened to it six or seven times, just the one, the one episode several times. And so that was fresh in my mind. And then in November of last year, where uh, my family and I we were blessed to go to Myrtle Beach for a week's vacation. And we met up with Jonathan Varner and his family. We spent the day together at the resort that we were at. And I couldn't believe it, we're on the beach. And he's like, hey, do you know Randall Worley? I was like, I don't know him, I know of him. I've received a lot from him, but now I don't know him. He's like, man, he lives right here in Myrtle Beach. If I had known you wanted to meet him, we could have called and hung out. And I was like, man, don't do that to me. You don't do that to people, okay? And, uh, And so I filed that. I was like, well, that's good to know he's in Myrtle Beach, I didn't know that. And so I guess it was sometime in February, he shared an amazing post on Facebook and I, shared it like I share post on Facebook and he sent me a message I was like why why is Randall Worley sending me a message on Facebook and he just said I want to thank you for sharing that post and you know I'd love to connect sometime and then I responded and I told him hey I spent the day with Jonathan Varner and we got a lot of mutual friends and then he sent me back his his cell phone number now I'm not going to give it out tonight you guys can't have but but I was like wow and he said give me a call long story short an hour and a half conversation just beautiful just just sharing life and revelating and things like that and he said uh, hey would you be open to me just coming up and spend a little time with you i was like well yeah sure and he said what about palm sunday weekend sounds great and then i did what pastors do well if you come though i mean would you mind i mean we have sunday service you know, and, uh, you know, he's, yeah, we'll, we'll see, we'll connect. And, uh, and long story short, here he is. And uh, 
I, I'm convinced it's a Kairos moment. I really am. Um, and uh, I, we've been in a season here at Dominion, we've been doing a series called The In-Between Place. And right as I was launching that, he sent me his books in the mail. And I saw that from wandering to wondering. I said, okay, Lord, I hear, I hear what you're telling me. And so what I've been able to bring the last couple of weeks has been enriched by that book because it's helped me connect some dots there that I desperately needed in this journey. And so uh, he can share more, but he's, he's devoted much of his life to ministry. He's pastored. He's done itinerant ministry. He's known around the world, author, father, husband. I mean, just, just a great guy. And uh, so I want you to come and release what's in you. Let's give the Lord praise for, the, for Randall and the gift that he brings. Amen. Happy anniversary. I understand just how important uh, the celebration and commemoration of those anniversaries are. Uh, this is my first time in Greer. In uh, 43 years of travel, 4 million miles, my first time in Greer. So, it's good to be here. I can't necessarily say it was on my bucket list, but... Uh, <laughs> No offense. I, I would really be remiss if I didn't take a moment to express my appreciation to some of um, my friends, uh, old friends, not just that they're old, but I've known them a long time that came in, they're sitting right here. They came in from uh, Rock Hill, Fort Mill area, Lancaster. Um, if you're from South Carolina, you know it's not Lancaster, it's Lancaster. And it took me a long time to master the enunciation of Lancaster. I think it's named after Lancashire, England. Been there. <clears throat> But anyway, uh, as uh, Matthew was saying, I've been very intentional in the last few years um, in reaching out to people that I feel drawn to in relationship because relationships have always been paramount for me. Uh, I, I've been doing this a long time and I understand how that, is, is it okay if I take a few moments just to get acquainted with you? I'm going to do it anyway, but I just thought it'd be nice. Um, but anyway, um, in the world of ministry, there is uh, really so much lack of authenticity. And I I'm sad to say that, but it's true. Uh, I've had the opportunity to meet, you know, what would be referred to as the first tier premier voices in the church over the years. And um, I, I've met a number of them that are in love with the sound of their own voice and legends in their own mind, if you know what I mean. But at the end of the day, it's about relationship, isn't it? The Trinity itself is relationship. 
I'm not sure we understand how profoundly simple yet simply profound that really is, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if we're not doing relationship very well, everything else doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. So in the last few months, I've actually got on planes, gotten in my car, and I've driven to places, sometimes, you know, showing up like Jesus said he would, like a thief in the night. And um, it, it's, that part's pretty enjoyable, just to show up and be sitting in the audience. Because I feel like now, more than ever before, there is really a need for advocacy and solidarity. Are, are you tracking with me so far? Uh, I, many years ago, was reading the Psalms, and I came to Psalm 16. And as I was reading it, it opens this way. David says, the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places, and I've been given a goodly heritage. And I paused there for a moment because it really gripped me, and I thought, what does that mean? Well, I discovered when he used the word lines, he was referring to the means by which inheritances were determined. In contemporary language, if you have a deed to your property, your home, probably somewhere in a dusty file, you have a plot plan that shows the meets and bounds of your property. And of course, the surveyors come out, one with a transit, this little tripod, another one stands at a reference point holding a plumb bob, and there they shoot the boundaries. And primarily for the purpose of making sure that you don't transgress on someone or somebody transgresses on you, or trespasses, I should say. But then I began to think, you know, there must be something more here. And in a very elementary way, uh, something occurred for me. I remembered when I was just a small child, I can't remember whether it was a school teacher or my mother possibly, I was maybe five years old, just beginning to develop some dexterity to stay in the lines in my coloring book. And I came to the back page and I saw something I'd never seen before. There on the last page were all these dots that were just sprinkled all over it. And there were numbers assigned to it. Now you're ahead of me, you already know that's a connect the dot picture, but I didn't know that at five. And I was really puzzled by it, pardon the pun. And uh, so I inquired, again, I don't know whether it was my mother or maybe my school teacher. I said, what is this? And they explained to me very simply, Randall, if you will start with one and follow the sequence, one, two, three, four, even though these dots, it seemed like had no rhyme or reason to them, there was no symmetry initially. If you'll do that, you'll see what this is. And that flashed back to me as I was reading Psalm 16 and I realized that in all these years and all the places and all the people I've ever known, that my destiny has been running parallel to theirs. And God had predestined, as he says in the book of Romans, he had predestined a point in time where our destinies would converge. We call it coincidence. And coincidence 
for most of us is just the attempt to describe something that didn't seem to have any rhyme or reason to it, but in reality, it's a geometric term that also describes how two lines perfectly converge. Now, some of you may just think that's serendipity. You may think it's just, you know, there's some people that do not believe in synchronicity, and if you're not familiar with synchronicity, don't worry yourself with that. But I do believe in synchronicity. I believe that there's a time and a place and a season for everything. And so it was intended on March 28, 2021, that we would converge here. Amen. Now, that's not what I came to talk to you about at all. <clears throat> but I felt like it was good for us just to say that in terms of how we understand the grand scheme of things and how that he has determined even before we were conceived, understanding that we didn't come from our parents, we came through them. We didn't come from them. We came through them and God chose in time like a grand surveyor, he cast out over the map of my life the dots, and they fell in certain places. And I'm just connecting the dots. So if you're a little confused right now about who, who you are and where you are, just keep connecting the dots. Because if you do, if you do, what happens? When I finished the sequence, suddenly I saw the picture that I could not see was encrypted there. Amen. Now, uh, thank you so much for your company. Pastor, maybe I'll get acquainted with you later. Thank you so much. Enjoyed the, the worship immensely tonight. Um, I'm going to make a promise that I'm a bit tentative about, and that is, it's a promise that Elizabeth Taylor made to her eighth husband. Uh, and that is, I won't keep you very long. <laughs> but I can't guarantee anything. I had, uh, for these fine people that sat under our ministry for many, many years, uh, they know that I don't lack for anything to say. That never has been the issue at all. Uh, in fact, if you ever met my wife, you would understand after hearing me tonight that I did not win her with my good looks. Because most of the time when people see her, they look at me and then they look at her and then they look back at me and I know what they're thinking. <laughs> they're thinking I robbed the cradle and she robbed the grave. <laughs> I, I get it. I really do. I get it. But you understand that the gift of communication is not just before audiences. I talked my way into that heart. So anyway, where was I before you interrupted me? <laughs> it is Palm Sunday, and I don't take the text that I'm taking out of obligation at all. I think it's really important that especially the more progressive churches that would refer to themselves as progressive or the charismatic churches would take a good lesson from the evangelical and more liturgical streams of the church. 
in following the calendar that has been followed for many centuries now. And so I want us in just a few moments to address this particular text found in Matthew chapter 21. You can go ahead, I'll join you there in a few moments. Matthew chapter 21. There's an old antidote, and as you're turning, I'm giving you uh, some multitasking to do. I, I want you to listen to this antidote because I think it uh, really contextualizes what I want to talk to you about, but you have to listen very closely because if you don't listen very closely, you'll totally miss the point of this antidotal story. In this antidotal story, there was a mystic, an evangelical pastor, and a fundamentalist preacher. You got that? A mystic, an evangelical pastor, and a fundamentalist preacher, and they all die on the same day and awake, and they find themselves at the pearly gates. Upon reaching the pearly gates, they're promptly greeted by Peter, who informs them that before entering heaven, they must be interviewed by Jesus concerning the state of their doctrine. The first to be called forward was the mystic, who was quietly ushered into a room. Five hours later, the mystic reappears with a smile, saying, I thought I'd got it all wrong. Then Peter signals for the evangelical pastor, who stands up and enters the room, and after a full day has passed, the pastor reappears with a frown and says to himself, how could have I been so foolish? Peter finally asks for the fundamentalists to follow him. You still listening? The fundamentalist picks up his well-worn Bible and he walks into the room. A few days pass with no sign of the preacher. Then abruptly the door opens and Jesus walks out and says, how could I have gotten it all wrong? So again, and I'll probably repeat myself, uh, not because of memory issues, but because I understand the value of repeating things. But this is, as we refer to it, Palm Sunday, which in my opinion is really a misnomer. It's a misnaming of this particular event. It's an inflection point in the life of Jesus. If you know anything about the gospel narrative, you realize that everything begins to shift on this day because this is the first day of what we refer to as the Holy Week, correct? Now, Matthew 21, beginning with verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming 
to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their put on their cloaks on them, and he sat on them, and most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches down from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and them that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I said earlier that I believe, in, in fact, in this ESV, this English Standard Version that I'm reading from, the heading of Matthew 21 identifies this as the triumphal entry. When in reality, if you're familiar with the context of this, it was not so much a triumphal entry as we would assume. This is uh, a parade or is it a parody? I mean, when we think in terms of a parade, I'm not talking about the well-known parades that came down through the heart of Manhattan in what is referred to as the Canyon of Heroes, where athletes and astronauts and great war veterans were celebrated as they are riding in open limousines. It's not like that at all. And many of you have lived long enough to have witnessed that. If you haven't, you've probably seen some of these watershed moments in history that have been captured when these great heroes, whether they be athletes or politicians or war heroes, as they are celebrated and they have these great ticker tape experiences, right? This is the absolute, absolute antithesis of that, what's getting ready to happen. You say, well, wait a minute, it seems rather similar to me because they're throwing their cloaks down in front of him. They're ripping palm branches down and throwing in front of them. It's really quite paradoxical if we understand really what is going on in this particular passage. But before I do, uh, let me just address something that I think, and I don't mean for this to be sound, have a critical tone to it, but let me address something that I think all of you are aware of. It's the proverbial elephant in the room, so to speak, that America has somewhat of a love affair with superheroes or these indomitable characters, don't they? That's the reason why they garner millions and millions of dollars in blockbuster movies, right? We just, we love power. We love power lifters and power brokers and power personalities. We, we tend to almost live vicariously, don't we, through those people that possess all of these traits that we are completely enamored with. It is the condition of the culture, isn't it? Are you with me so far? You see, you gotta understand if you were reading this, and I know because I've read this passage countless times, I've forgotten how many times I've read it in Matthew's rendering of it and 
especially Luke in Luke 19. But this past week, I have returned to it again and again and again. I mean, you do understand, don't you, that you can read something so many times that it's worn smooth with familiarity. Or maybe you have a Bible that you have marked and highlighted and notated so many times until the text even isn't legible anymore. And then somehow you go back there and it's almost as if he takes the gem of scripture and he holds it up in a different light and turns it just ever so slightly and it refracts something that you had not previously seen. Am I talking to the right people? I can tell you this is the story of my life. So in coming back to Matthew's account here, just this past week, I found some things that I had overlooked. I had not noticed them. I had not seen this about the triumphal entry because like most of you who have any history in church, I grew up on Palm Sunday when we came in. You were met in the lobby, weren't you? Or the vestibule, whatever your tradition called it. And you are the narthex. I want to make sure I don't leave out the Presbyterians. <laughs> and you were greeted with a palm branch, right? And everything built to this crescendo in the meeting. And, and, and I'm not being insensitive. I'm not mocking that. But everything built to a crescendo where we all waved our branches before the Lord. Hosanna. I get that. I understand that these are sincere people. But in many ways, I think in our sincerity, we've been in error. Because that was not entirely what was going on in the original Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. They didn't. It's Passover. It's the beginning of Passover. There is, there is the sound of celebration in the air that will be for several days. The population of Jerusalem has swelled from 50,000 to over 200,000 because the faithful followers of Judaism had come from all four points of the compass. They were required to go up to Jerusalem. And so it's festive, isn't it? Uh, I, I don't want to sound blasphemous, but it's almost like Times Square on New Year's Eve or Bourbon Street in Mardi Gras. I mean, people are just in, packed in there so tight. And Jesus is approaching. Now, before I move on, let me come back to this unhealthy infatuation that we have with the powerful. Because if I had titled this, maybe I should title this, I would call it the parade of powerlessness. And this is so counterintuitive to us. Now don't get discouraged, it gets better. But I will challenge the way you think and help you to wonder why you think the way you think. That's part of my calling. And so, anyway, how many of you, I, I, in considering this earlier, I thought, you know, I need to survey the demographic here. Most of you, when we talk about the superhero complex, you know, these indomitable characters that we're infatuated with, uh, you know some of the more current ones, but how many of you remember Chuck Norris? 
Let me see those hands. Don't be ashamed. If you don't know who Chuck Norris is, Chuck Norris was one of the original. I was in a church recently, and I actually found this in the restroom. I go in the restroom, and uh, it was right before I was supposed to go up and speak. And um, so I go in the restroom, as usually it's my practice, because when you reach my age, you take care of certain things. And there on the wall were all these, I didn't want to leave the restroom. I thought, man, I wish I could skip the meeting because I'm in there howling in the restroom. And they're talking about Chuck Norris. And uh, they said, you know, it said that when Chuck Norris was born, he drove his mother home from the hospital. <laughs> Chuck Norris has never had a heart attack because his heart is afraid to attack him. He can slam a revolving door. He was once bitten by a rattlesnake, and after seven agonizing days, the rattlesnake died. I think, you know, unconsciously we have been conditioned to living vicariously through the accomplishments of others and we don't understand what is being portrayed here with Jesus in the power of powerlessness. Because, you know, we know, according to the text, that this was a fulfillment of a prophecy from the book of Zechariah that it would be this way. We know that. Don't be so certain that those that were observing all of this unfold in real time, that they were as conscious of that as you are. Don't be so certain of that. Because as Jesus is entering on the eastern side, coming down the Mount of Olives, path, passing through Bethany and Bethpage, which, by the way, there, he is in the wake of you know, a new wave of fame because if you compare the Gospels, you find out that all of this transpires. That's why I said it was a real inflection point. It was a very a big shift in everything in Jesus' life. And I want to help you to understand the relevancy for where we are right now, if I can but he's riding on the wave of fame that, I mean, the whole place is buzzing that he has raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, there was uh, certainly, it, the news of this spread like a brush fire. And so Jesus is coming through Bethpage and Bethany and he tells his disciples, which they were always, have you ever noticed, on a need to know basis. When he felt like they needed to know, he let them know. Because I think he, even he understood that really the opposite of faith is uncertainty. And that, that the opposite really of real faith is not so much doubt, but maybe I should say, I said that wrong, but certainty. That uncertainty is where most of us are right now and where Jesus seemed to always keep his disciples 
I don't know whether you have read the Gospels in that manner and you sense this tension. I, I, I have this feeling that they, many nights, that you know, they would be sitting by a campfire and Jesus has drifted off to sleep and as the fire is popping and crackling and Jesus is in third rim, you know, and you, you tell what is he dreaming about and all of the disciples are in this awkward silence looking at one another waiting on someone to break the tension and say, did anybody understand anything he said today? <laughs> you say, where is that in the Gospels? I, listen, I'm, I'm enough as a student of, of humanity that I understand that that's true. <laughs> and knowing that if you have more answers than you have questions, then you're probably already on the slippery slope of idolatry. We don't realize how much we live in this insatiable need for confirmation bias. I was talking to a young man from South Dakota on my way here today, actually North Dakota. And um, we were talking about this unconscious need for confirmation bias that we're always wanting to find something that confirms what we are sure of. When in truth, faith and predictability cannot coexist. If you are dealing with a lot of uncertainty right now, that's a wonderful place to be in. Yeah, I understand. See, for many years, I thought it was my responsibility as a communicator and a teacher of some degree that when people came into the meetings when they left, that they left with far more clarity than they did when they arrived. And one day I was reading one of the books that Eugene Peterson wrote, The Man That Gave Us the Message Bible. And he wrote many other books. He was a prolific author, and he said that one of the problems with American Christianity is that preachers and pastors, that their messages suffer from a severe lack of ambiguity. That people should come in with questions and leave wrestling with more. <laughs> to which I would add, clarity is overrated and intrigue is underestimated. <laughs> the ego has this insatiable need for clarity doesn't it? But back to the story. So Jesus is coming in on the eastern side of Jerusalem. He's descended down the Mount of Olives, and now he's on his way up to Zion. And on the other side of the city, which is not mentioned in the gospel narrative, but is, can be verified in additional writings. On the other side of the city, because it's Passover, and there's, there's not a, only a, you know, a air of festivity that is going on in the air, but you, you do remember that they're under Roman occupation and have been for quite some time. And I'm not sure that we fully understand the significance of that, that they're under Roman occupation and domination. Because when Jesus starts his earthly ministry, I'm not sure that we understand just how incendiary it was, as Mark puts it, now this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because listen to me now, there was a dominant narrative that was already in play before Jesus ever started his public ministry. And that dominant narrative had been established by the Roman Empire. 
Long before Jesus was ever born, this narrative was running this way. And again, it was the dominant narrative. And it actually was called the gospel. The word gospel is not a word that was coined by the, believer, by the community of believers. Is, am I okay? My mic is having some issues. Is that better? Okay. All right, Mike, you're fired. <laughs> so where was I? Oh, the dominant narrative that had already been established was a narrative that made use and employed the word that we use for gospel. The word gospel was not a word that was coined by Jesus or by the disciples or even by the apostles, the word gospel is a Greek word from which we get the word evangelion. And this was, it's another word for propaganda. And the propaganda that had been established before Jesus was ever born was that Caesar, I mean, see, there's these narratives that are running, these subversive stories that are running, that Caesar was actually conceived of a virgin himself. And that's the reason why all of the coinage in the Roman Empire had his imprint on it, had his image on it, and it said, Caesar is Lord. So this whole language of the gospel and Jesus being Lord was something that predated even the coming of Jesus into the world. Are you tracking with that? So as Jesus, I mean, you know, obviously by now, the stories about him are legendary of raising people from the dead and walking on water and multiplying loaves and fishes. But the thing I believe that was most threatening, not only to the religious culture, but to the political culture of that day, Rome in particular, this military complex that existed in the first century, the most threatening thing was Jesus's message, not his miracles. Now, there are a lot of people that would assume that the message of Jesus was not at all political, but it was political, just political in a way that none of us ever imagined. Because if you read the Sermon on the Mount in particular, you will recognize that even the teachings of Jesus on the in the Sermon on the Mount is very challenging to those of us who are capitalistic in our understanding. I wonder if Jesus ever gave, if Jesus were here now and appeared before a joint session of Congress and he shared his notes from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, I wonder what would happen to him. He probably would be locked up for being a socialist because it has that tone to it. Now, I didn't say Jesus was a socialist. I didn't say that. But you do understand that most of what we call the gospel is a very westernized and even if I can be so bold to say, a bastardized form of the gospel. So, lest you think I've forgotten where I was going with all this, so on the western side of the city of Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate is arriving at the same time. It's a convergence of things. That's the reason why I said 
it was an inflection point because as Pilate is coming in on the other side of the city, he's coming in in all of the pomp and circumstance. He has columns of Roman soldiers that have spears, javelins, swords, shields that are glinting in the sun. You can hear the thunderous sound of the cavalry, the horses as, they, as, their, as their feet are pounding on the cobblestone coming into Jerusalem. And the reason why they were doing this is because they realized that this was a powder keg. Jerusalem was a powder keg. And with all these people, there might be an insurrection. There might be a rebellion. They might be able. Why would that have been concerned to them? Because if you know anything about Jewish history, there had been insurrections. And see, what the Jewish people were waiting on, they were not waiting on Jesus to come in this manner. Like most of us, God is not acting like he's supposed to. I mean, in 2021, he is not acting like he's supposed to. And I've heard so many well-intentioned people, sincere people, that, you know, especially in the last year or so, that have referenced Romans 8.28 again and again and again. It's the default setting of most believers. For we know that all things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. And it's probably the most misused and abused text in all of Paul's writings. Because we reference that one. It, again, it's our default setting. God is in control. God's got this. Come on, somebody. Yeah, come on. God's in control. But they fail to go back and see the broader context in which Paul said that. Because earlier, in earlier verses, he said, For I consider not the sufferings of this present time to be worthy, to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. One of the things that we are being confronted with right now uh, in 2021 is we are being confronted with our lack of good theology as it relates to suffering. I'm not talking about praying for suffering, but I will tell you that suffering is a part of the human curriculum. It is inevitable. And one of the things that has created a very anemic church culture is that we have not taught a clear perspective on suffering. Is God in control? After all, he is omnipotent. But if God is omnipotent or all-powerful and omniscient, knows all things and omnipresent <coughs> everywhere, does that necessarily imply that he is under any obligation to exercise all of that power in a way that is pleasing to us? If suffering is inevitable, maybe if you take nothing away from what I'm saying here tonight and all of my rambling, you'll take this away. And know, if it is inevitable, <clears throat> that suffering is exacerbated as a result of us having unhealthy attachment to expected outcomes. This is what they're being confronted with right here. 
because they expected they expected a David from the Old Testament or a Joshua because they knew their history. They expected Jesus to come into the city riding a steed. That's what they expected. Now, you know that, and I know that, and you say, what does that have to do with me right now? Many of your expectations, many of my expectations have been really exposed in the last 12 to 14 months. Correct? I'll say it again. Suffering is intensified. It's exacerbated as a result of us being attached to expected outcomes. It didn't happen the way you thought it would. And then what causes, what, what do we usually do? Hear this. You connect the dots in whatever way is helpful for you. Then what do we do? We start looking for the power brokers. We start looking for the power personalities. We start looking for what is represented on the opposite side of the city and not what is coming down the road, which looks like total and complete helplessness and vulnerability. Because he's riding, depending on what commentary you read, he is, he's either riding on the colt or he's riding on the foal. Now you understand why I said that this is a political parody. It's flying in the face. Do you think maybe the text says <clears throat> that there was the whole city was stirred? The word there in its original meaning goes back to the word seismic is the word that we use to describe earthquakes. It was like the whole city was shaking and shifting. Do you think maybe that on the other side of the city that one of the emissaries of Pilate heard what was going on and he gallops to the other side of town to see what this stir is all about, to see maybe if there is possibly an insurrection in motion. And he looks and he probably begins to howl with laughter. What is this? The same response that I read there in the closing verse. Who is this? So we're trying to make a lot of things great again. Yeah. And that's not meant to have a political tone to it at all. You know, how many times have you heard, I have heard it, and I know you understand this all too well because of your background, but, uh, I mean, I, my inbox was just flooded a year ago this past month from people from all over the world. Is this the apocalypse? Yes, it is the apocalypse. <laughs> but it's not the end of the world. You never really understood what the apocalypse meant to begin with. Had nothing to do with something that was looming out there on the horizon that was some cataclysmic event when the whole world was going to implode. The word apocalypse, named after the last book in the Bible, is an unveiling. And what's happening right now is not only an unveiling of what our motives are, but it's an unveiling of who he is and what he's really up to. 
And he's not particularly concerned about our economy. He's not particularly concerned. I think I lost you right there in that turn. He's not particularly concerned about our economy. Neither is he particularly concerned about many of the things that we think are high on the list because of our westernized gospel. This may be my first and last time. I'm not sure. <laughs> he comes in humility. That's the part I think we miss. I mean, it's almost comedic. His legs must have been dragging the ground, his feet dragging the ground if he's riding this rickety donkey with spindly legs that has never bore the weight of a man. And the donkey is just trying to hold up and take the next step. May I challenge you with another thought here that comes to mind. I mean, this is the man that would have told them days before there's going to come a time when you're going to have to take up your own cross and follow me. Yet he himself will collapse under the weight of his own cross. Tell me how to understand that one. It's really encouraging to me for him to tell me that I have to take up my own cross. And eventually, when he is at almost to the apex of what he came here to do, he collapses under the weight of his own. This is a time for mercy. This is a time for vulnerability. This is a time for humility. This is a time for intelligent humility. That sounds like a contradiction in terms, an oxymoron. But it is really a time for intelligent humility, for us understanding if everybody's saying the same thing, somebody must not be thinking. Humility. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting word. The root of the word is humus. I'm not talking about something you get at the grocery store. <laughs> the humus is something that is the product of something that's been alive, that has died and decayed, and it appears that is useless, and the process is now irreversible, when in reality, this is what creates the natural, organic seedbed on which everything else grows. Humility. It's in the same family of the word, words human and humor. That's why they're laughing at this prophet on a donkey. And all these fanatics that are waving palm branches. And see, we think this is a worship service. It's really not a worship service because the term Hosanna means save us. Save us. And that's where most of American Christianity is right now. Save us. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And if we're really seeing him and sensing him, because he is always coming to us disguised as our own life. He always comes in humility. 
I mean, you think about the culture wars that we've become so accustomed to. Listen, <clears throat> I'm not that old, but I do remember that a lot of the stuff that we now have become conditioned to accept is absolutely appalling. The way people talk to each other. Oh, and that's just the way it is. Oh, really? Really? The rancor, the polarization that seems to be the order of the day. And Jesus, I mean, he goes right into the midst of all that. <coughs> you know the response of the Pharisees and ultimately the, the response of Pilate and the Roman government toward him. And he goes right into the midst of it and it appears that he is powerless. But really, he possesses all power. That's why it's counterintuitive when Jesus teaches if somebody smites you on the cheek, offer the other, which is a very in-depth teaching because he's specific about which cheek. And when you understand the implication of that, which I don't have time to unpack it now, you understand the implication of that, that what is happening is the perpetrator, whenever he does that, when he takes his hand and smites open-handedly a person like that, this is the ultimate of humiliation. And Jesus says, offer the other, because in offering the other, he has to contort his blow. And when you do that, everybody knows that the person who is really being humiliated is not the person who seems to be on the receiving end of it, but the person who is giving it. Are you, you still there? If somebody sues you, don't just give them your cloak. Just go ahead and strip down. Give them everything. And you're standing there naked. See who's, who's humiliated then. If they compel you to go a mile, go two miles, which means that if that happens, uh, you know, if a Roman soldier conscripts a Jew to do that, then that means that they are in jeopardy of losing their position. See, all of, see in the kingdom of God, you've heard this, and I've, I've said it myself so many times until it almost bores me in saying it, but I, I do understand the relevancy of this now more than ever before, that the kingdom of God is the antithesis of what we call reality. The way up is down. The way you live is by dying. The way you receive is by giving. Everything is the opposite. That's why he's trying to bring us into reality. Everything else that we live in is an illusion. And we want God to be in control. We want God to be in control. Or at least to be in control in a way that is palatable to us. I mean, we can't even tolerate the most minute inconveniences, not realizing it, as Chesterton says, that inconvenience is nothing more than an adventure misinterpreted. That bites at me after almost every day. So he comes in this humility unlike anything they'd ever seen. And I just want to remind you, I mean, I'm not a humble man. I know that. Most people that I've 
met over the years that are truly humble or completely unaware of it. They don't talk about humility. They just personify the virtue. But maybe if humility has to do in its root with humus or the decay and the dying. See, I believe that everything is falling apart right now. Yes, I did say that. Everything is falling apart right now. And the reason it is falling apart is because that's the only way for something better to come together. We've never understood the process of death, burial, and resurrection. The trees, as I drove the interstate on the way over here, popping in these beautiful hues of green. The wisteria looks surreal. Vibrant purple. The dogwoods, the pink and the white dogwoods. But just a few weeks ago, there was no foliage. They looked like gray skeletons silhouetted against the sky. But the creation has been speaking to us that death, burial, and resurrection, or as one man said it, we have had an orientation now for a long, long, long time, and now we're in a season of disorientation. And I don't know how long the disorientation is going to last, but it will ultimately lead to a reorientation. The whole city is disoriented by what's going on because they have this insatiable appetite for justice. Well, that, see, that's a word that's a big buzzword right now. Social justice. I have no problem with that. I do have the tone that is taken by many. I do have a problem with the obsession that many people have with it. The way many of these things continue to survive is because we continue to fuel it. We continue to talk about it. And as long as you talk about it, see, that's, that's always been interesting to me. I came up in a, in a false warfare culture that was constantly, you know, you could hear the devil's name more than you would Jesus in a meeting. And then they wondered why there was so much demonic activity around them. If you stop talking about him because of his ego, he dissipates. He has no space. There is no place for him. And most of the things that we just constantly want to talk about, talk about, we're the ones that are keeping it alive. They wanted justice because of the oppression. But see, here's another thing that most of us miss. And so now I'm being historical, but I'm also being relevant as well. Every culture that has been an oppressive culture, whenever those who have been oppressed have an exodus or set free, they ultimately become oppressors themselves. It's in human nature. It's in our very DNA. The kingdom of God is not about us spreading our form of democracy and colonizing the rest of the world. That's not the kingdom of God. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't come through a military complex. It comes through a humble man that almost looks comedic in his presentation. 
What does it prove to us? What, what is this whole scenario? I, I gotta, can I talk just a little more about justice? You see, because our form of justice, you know, what's the most iconic figure of justice in this country? The most iconic figure of justice in this country is a woman who is blindfolded. And she has a set of scales in one hand and she has the law in the other. So she's blind. I hope you're hearing that. She's blind and she is ready and willing to put you on the scales. Because see, this is our sense of what justice is. We think that justice is about God giving us what we deserve. And we also mistakenly think that God's justice is retributive and transactional in nature. But God's justice is not retributive. It has always been, always been restorative. It's not, he's not a God that is into an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. As Martin Luther King said, if we were, we'd all be blind and toothless. And the truth is we are. We're blind to what we're blind to. That's the worst kind of blindness. Not just physical blindness, but being blind to what you're blind to. How many times have you said, oh, I see it. Well, you saw it all along. And most of us, we don't realize that you will always miss. Or what you focus on will always determine what you miss. And they missed it totally. Save us. Save us. And see, I, I can't leave this out. I know that my time is running out, but I, I, can't, I can't leave this out because the companion text of this is a hymn that is found in Philippians chapter 2. I'll just reference it rather than reading it. You know, where Paul is talking to the Philippian believers this colony of Rome. And he says to them, you should not think of yourself more highly than you ought. He said, you should esteem others better than yourself. He says that God took on the form of a servant. He didn't think it robbery, even though he was equal to God, to be, take upon himself the form of a servant. And we know this is the emptying, the total emptying of himself. Here's what I want to make sure you understand about this aspect of his humility. It wasn't humiliating for God to become one of us. That's why sometimes I kind of, I didn't used to, but I, I kind of, you know, recoil when I hear songs that call me a wretch. I know I've done some wretched things, but that doesn't mean I'm a wretch. It's not like, you know, he was, you know, it was a disgusting task, but Jesus said, well, I'll be the one that will condescend and lower myself and become one of them. It was a humbling thing that he did, but it was not a humiliating thing because God did not become any less than he was in order to become one of us. Are you hearing me? I'm not talking about humiliation. I'm talking about the true power of powerlessness. I'm talking about what Jesus demonstrated for us in his coming on this great Palm Sunday or 
this parade of powerlessness. You know, history really is the story of war. It always has been. Going all back, all the way back to Cain and Abel. That's been the entire story of humanity is the story of war. And usually it is not the victims that have any editorial privilege in how it all went down. But it's the people who win that tell you how it really went down. Interesting. Yeah, see, the, the ego of man is so sensitive and so fragile that he would rather go to war than lose an argument. I feel like I've kept you too long already. <clears throat> These culture wars, though, that we've been conditioned by They've condi conditioned us to be reactive. Have, have you find, found yourself being a little more thin-skinned and more reactive? Come on, don't look at me like that. More reactive instead of thoughtful? Most of the most time, at least 10% of the criticism that you're receiving from those who are criticizing you is true. Humility does not focus on the other 90% where you can prove them unequivocally wrong. Humility says, well, you know what? I know they're right about that. So what does this have to do with the story of Palm Sunday? <clears throat> I think when we see this, we see the way the king comes to us because the text said, behold, your king comes to you. I, I'm just, I guess, uh, a little worn out with how those who react seem to get everybody's attention while the thoughtful are suspect. <laughs> I mean, in, in, this, in, in this environment, reactive faith is viewed as strong faith. Did you hear what I said? Reactive faith is viewed as being strong faith when, react, when in actuality it reflects instability and immaturity. Hence, when Jesus is called on, they say, you're a king, we're your subjects. And he opened not his mouth. <laughs> so I, I understand that, you know, and if anybody's qualified to say this, Peter was, right? I mean, you know, he's... He's got a mouth shaped like a foot. Right? I mean, he's, he's talking when nobody is asking him a question. He's the epitome of being impetuous, unpredictable. If anybody qualifies to say, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due season. Which one reading of that could be my responsibility is to humble myself. It's his responsibility to exalt me. If I exalt myself, he will make sure I get humbled. <laughs> I'll end.
end on this. Hopefully it's a light note. <laughs> uh, I had a, my mother's mother, my grandmother, she lived to be 93 years old and was the feistiest human being I'd ever seen in my life. She was all of five foot two at the most, maybe five feet tall. Feisty. Would argue with a sign. Argumentative. No, it's not that way. <laughs> well, yeah, it is, Grandma. It's that way. No, it's not that way. You don't know anybody like that. You know? <laughs> Which, by the way, most of the people that are incredibly irrita ir irritating to you right now uh, and you are desperate to see them change, it really is a reflection of the change that needs to take place in you, not the change that needs to take place in them. Because everybody's your teacher. Everybody. <clears throat> and so we were watching some cocky, arrogant person on television one day, and she's laughing. And she said, <clears throat> I'd like to buy him for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. And this is, this is, in my opinion, the key to experiencing the kingdom of God, the coming of the king in the manner in which he came, which will ultimately cause every, like, he, like Philippians says, after he emptied himself, he was given a name that was exalted above every name, that every knee in heaven and earth and even beneath the earth would bow its name to the name of Jesus. So real authority and power is not bravado. It is not these gregarious personalities. We're going to do this and we're going to do no, this. No, I don't see him in that. I don't see Jesus in that. Man, this is such a challenge, isn't it? But I'm convinced to navigate our way forward in the ever-changing world, it is the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is the way.